Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. Hey, y'all. We are starting off season four with Rocio Villalobos. I have been waiting to record this session for a while, but just never got around to it. Rocio is from Austin, Texas, which is where I lived for seven years before moving to Columbus, Ohio. I wish I had known her before we moved because Rocio has acquired power to her, which has manifested into the amazing work she does for her community and the environment. She's an avid trail runner who promotes mental health, having experienced her own challenges and finding a place to belong in nature. She runs to promote indigenous values around running to heal the soul and healing one's relationship to the land. She is also a mentor who helps connect young people to nature and themselves. In addition, she is also an environmental and social justice activist who is fighting to promote healthy community in her East Austin neighborhood, which is predominantly Latinx and a Black community and have experienced environmental injustices. Last but not least, she is currently working with the city of Austin's equity office as an immigrant affairs coordinator. And in this part of the conversation, we talk about what is the role of government in promoting equity and how do they do it responsibly while still coming to terms with some of the oppressions that they have caused historically. You'll see what I mean by quiet power when you hear Rocio speak about her work and her experiences. I highly recommend that you follow her on Instagram because that energy comes through as well. I really look up to Rocio because she's ultimately the well-rounded human being that I aspire to be. And she works very hard to be that. And it's a very intentional process. And I hope that you feel the energy that she brings to this conversation and to her work. And I'm really honored to have the season begin with her. All right. Well, Rocio, thank you so much for being on the Breaking Green Ceilings podcast. I'm really excited to make this conversation happen after a couple of years of intent from my end, but no action. So I'm glad I got (laughs) on that. So today we're just going to be talking to you about your passion for outdoor running. Is there like a professional term for that? Trail running? Trail running. Is it true? Yeah. Trail running. running, Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Running in the outdoors <laughs> <laughs> professionally. <laughs> That's the long version. And then your initiatives in outdoor education, and then also the work that you're doing with the equity office with the city of Austin in immigrant affairs. So, because this is an environmentally focused podcast, we start our first question here with what role has nature played in your life? Well, first off, thanks for the invitation. I'm excited to be here with you. I think if you had asked me this question even six years ago, I might have given a very different answer because the truth is that nature was always there, shaping my experiences and my reality in different ways, but I hadn't been attuned to the way that it was shaping my reality and my existence. So When I was younger, I grew up in a neighborhood that didn't have a whole lot of access to parks. 
we lived in East Austin, which has a long history of segregation, right? Inequities divided by the I-35 border that cuts through the city. And so I grew up going occasionally to parts of West Austin that had these beautiful, massive parks like Zilker Park. You know, that's one of the crown jewels of the city. And I didn't really think about the fact that we didn't have those types of places in East Austin. I think there was a report that was released a few weeks ago, and there's some other information prior to to that about the fact that there is less tree canopy cover in East Austin, and it's similar in other cities. And this creates hotter conditions for people to even be able to be outside and enjoy spending time outside. So I think that there are all of these sorts of factors that really affected my experience with nature. And in some ways, because of the environment that I grew up in, it wasn't necessarily appealing to be outside because we didn't have a lot of parks. And the places that we had, you know, were really hot. There wasn't a whole lot of shade. And so where are you going to go? Right. When it's just hot and asphalt and not a lot of, of green spaces that are being protected. But I think in, in other ways, I had really impactful experiences that I hadn't really reflected upon. One of those for me was the road trips that my family would take to visit family in what's now central Mexico. My dad has family in Monterrey and my mom has family in the state of Guanajuato. And whenever we would go and visit, we would always look for these mountains. They were called El Cerro de la Silla. And that was sort of our marker to let us know that we're almost at our destination. And there are these beautiful mountains. They were unlike anything I had experienced or seen in Austin, in Texas, because we stayed pretty much just in the Austin area. It always just felt like coming home, even though I didn't spend a whole lot of time there in, in Mexico with my family, with my extended family there, but there was always something about it that just felt like coming home. I think now that I've reflected on those experiences, I can see my life was very much shaped by the nature and the lack of access to it at times, but it was always there, kind of shaping my existence and my reality. And the fact that certain communities and neighborhoods have been designed specifically with less access to amenities, right? Like parks or even just things like tree canopy cover. I think now I more actively and explicitly search for that connectedness to the land and to nature. I think in many ways, because I didn't have that growing up and it was once that I got out there on the trails visiting parks, whether it was local city parks here that I had just never been to because they were in West Austin, which had always felt off limits to me as a kid, or now visiting state parks and national parks. It almost feels like at times I'm sort of trying to make up for that lost time in some ways, but really it's just feeling so grounded and feeling at peace and realizing how much my body and my mind need that time outside to feel at peace and to feel balanced. Right. And to feel like this is your home, like you said, in mind and spirit. So as you know, I lived in Austin for seven years and I hardly ever met any local Austinites. <laughs> They're kind of rare. Yeah. <laughs> 
But I'm glad that I got to, well, virtually meet you, but also just get to know about you. And that was like two years ago after I left Austin. And I was like, dang it, why why didn't, how didn't I get on Instagram before and look for you? (laughs) But it was, you did like all the things that I was yearning for when I was living in Austin is like a sense of community and just connecting with nature. I did a lot of that. It started just mostly out of need because I adopted a dog who was really high energy. And so then I had to start looking for parks to let her run about and let some of that energy out. And it was during those visits to the parks in Austin where it was the first time that I actually did that, honestly, like I think in in my life. I'd never gone seeking out parks because I always lived in an urban environment. But to see what I later learned were called green belts in in Austin, I was like, what is a green belt? Is it just a belt of trees? A lane of trees? I don't know. But Austin has like some of the most beautiful parks I have ever seen, like city parks. And these are like legit parks with rugged trails, really beautiful landscapes and rivers. And as you were talking about living in East Austin, I was like, wow, so close yet so far. Yeah, right. exactly. It was just right in your backyard, but it wasn't that easy to get access to it because East Austin to Zilker is probably without traffic. <laughs> is like maybe 10 minutes. 15 minutes? Yeah, it's 15, 20 that minutes. far. Yeah. Yeah. And then you were talking about the urban heat island effect that you were experiencing growing up. And that's something I didn't think about. East Austin must look very different from you today than it did when you were growing up. Is there more tree canopy and more parks now? I think that's the direction that the city is moving in. On the one hand, It goes hand in hand with some of the equity work that the city is engaging with. And on the other hand, it also feels that it's it's only happening because now the residents in pockets of East Austin, the communities there are becoming wider, right? And the communities that are wider are used to having their voices heard. They're more vocal about what they are used to and what they see as lacking from the neighborhoods that they're moving into. So I think that sort of green gentrification, right, that we are now having to contend with, these new developments that are going up and the amenities include access to green spaces and park improvements with nearby city parks. And I think it's a benefit. And I also consider and think about the loss that has occurred for that to happen. Yeah. I didn't hang out much in East Austin, just a few times, but not enough to be familiar with it. I lived in South Austin, but the parts of East Austin that we did end up visiting were mostly like the gentrified parts of the city. And it just made me curious to know, is the city doing anything to try and help the kind of original residents to be able to stay in East Austin as the cost of living is just almost, it's ridiculous now. And the cost of housing is so high in Austin. So based on the work, 
I'm not sure if you do any of that work with the equity office with the city of Austin, but are you familiar with if they're doing anything to kind of retain the original families? I will say that I think that there's work that is in the beginning stages. And in some ways, it feels too little too late, right? When I think about the number of families, the number of Black families in particular that the city has lost over the years. There is a focus now on displacement prevention with the city's housing and planning department. And I know that the city is in the process of hiring its first chief resiliency officer. And they're going to be tasked with building an office of resilience that is focused on how do we create communities, neighborhoods that are able to endure, you know, withstand severe hardship, right? When it comes to things that we're now seeing with the pandemic and the economic impact of that on top of the impact of potential natural disasters like what we experience with the winter storm. So they're going to be tasked with looking at resiliency in a broad way. And at the same time, I continue to see this sort of drive to build and to talk about affordability in very broad terms instead of being explicit about the need to create housing that specifically for very low-income people, truly deeply affordable housing. Because when you're just looking at the at a number of, for example, median family income, that has falsely been rising in the city. And it appears that there's less poverty, but it's because people that are poor are leaving the city. So it's we're displacing poverty and in that way, making it appear that people in Austin are more economically well-off than they actually are. And that therefore that there's less of a need to build the deeply affordable low-income housing. So I think that there's a lot more that should be happening that I am not seeing happen yet. Yeah. Wow. Displacing poverty. I don't think I've heard that before, but that's really what, what is happening. I really want to go deeper into like the affordability housing aspect, but I do need to make sure I stick to my own plan of what I want to discuss with you. So growing up in Austin, you described kind of like the lack of, but also going to your families, I guess, to visit your, your extended family in Mexico and experiencing the mountains and nature there. So fast forward, now you are a trail runner. And for those of you who don't follow Rocio on Instagram, we get to see like these really beautiful Texas landscapes that you run through. And you also often talk about the connection between being outdoors and mental health and are a big advocate for representation in the outdoors, which you've done through various initiatives like Children in Nature, the Children in Nature Collaborative at West Cave, and also working with Explore Austin, right? So Nature has really been kind of like the epicenter of your work, but it seems like maybe it started with trail running and you can correct me if I'm wrong. So how did that come to become your passion? I think it, I mean, it started with uh, just movement outdoors in a very broad way. When I was recovering from an eating disorder and kind of recovering from probably the most severe depression that I've experienced in my life. You know, it was something that I had always struggled with, even as a kid. But when I got older, it it got worse. 
And there was something that it almost felt like it was calling to me to spend time outside, that that was where I would find peace. And for me, it just started with going to what's now Lady Bird Lake. When I was growing up, it was Town Lake. Name has changed. It's Lady Bird Lake now. But it was right along the water. It was a trail. There were different loops that I could do. And it was just about spending time outside, sitting at the benches at times, taking a book to read, taking a journal to write, or just walking along the trail. From there, it just sort of progressed. One day I decided to try running a segment of it. And then the next time I decided to try running a little bit further, seeing if I could keep building my endurance and my capacity because I would get winded really fast. I didn't grow up running at all. So it was a completely new new sport, new experience for me to try. (laughs) And it was a struggle. And it, it also allowed me to feel really good. It didn't matter necessarily how far I went or at what speed. It just felt really good to move. And through that practice, I realized that where I had before had experienced a lot of negative self-talk, that was being transformed for me. You know, it wasn't negative self-talk. Those weren't the sort of narratives that I was telling myself when I was running. It was more about you can do it. You can get to that next stop. Like you feel great. And it was those little gradual experiences and, and moments that made me realize that I needed this connection with, with the land, with the outdoors, and that running was sort of a, a vehicle for me to be able to achieve that. And, and spending time on the trails was a vehicle for me to achieve that. I've actually only like gotten a lot more into trail running, I would say in the past two years. Before that, it was primarily on the roads. But there was something about being on the trails and doing the trail running that also really called to me because I enjoyed running, but I also didn't always want to run around cars on the streets in my neighborhood. And it felt like a really great way to begin to bring together two of the things that I was really interested in, which was, you know, visiting state parks and checking out the trails and running. And so I started to combine the two and realized how much more I loved running on the trails than running on the roads and just kind of took off from there. Yeah, I've always wanted to take up running, but I've just come to terms (laughs) with the fact that I don't like running. I'm just like, I am bored and I have like no more breath left in me. (laughs) And I don't run very far. I like, even if I run a mile, I'm like, whoa, okay, that was good. good." Yeah, there was once when I did like a 5K in college and it was so bad. It was like the second to last person out of like, I don't know how, it was like a city run too. But I think there are somewhere records on it, somewhere in Google (laughs) of this 5K where I'm like, a hundred and four out of like a hundred and five. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> but there's something like really liberating, I imagine, with running and just it's also meditative, I imagine, if I was like very much <laughs> <Yeah>. into running. <laughs> and the other thing that's not like so appealing is the urban running. It just feels like you're carrying the stress of like urban environments with you unless like you're in you know a really cool 
Park, which Austin has a lot of those. So I'm just curious to know, do you have an overall favorite trail and then maybe like a trail in Austin? But maybe you don't want to share the trail in Austin because then everyone's going to go there and you're like, mm. <laughs> no, so I don't know, like maybe off a park, <laughs> a state park. <laughs> I'm totally in favor of not gatekeeping those trails because I know that yeah. there are other people that are also looking for places and maybe also didn't grow up visiting these spots. So I will say that the park that I tend to run at the most, just because it's closest to me, but the trails are also beautiful, is Walnut Creek Park. Mm-hmm. They have a really great trail system, but also a paved loop. So people that maybe want, they're not comfortable on the trails, they can hop onto the paved loop and run or ride their bike. It's pretty popular with both people. So I would say that that one's probably the one that I tend to go to the most, but I honestly feel like the kind of person that will tell you like most trails are great trails. Like I don't have a favorite because they're all beautiful in different ways. I also love the green belt that you mentioned earlier, especially the Barton Creek green belt when the water is full and it's flowing. It's just, it's completely different vibe to go onto the green belt. So I think they're all beautiful in just different ways and I appreciate all of it. Yeah. I'm curious to know, as an advocate for people of color being more in the outdoors, when you were starting to kind of like discover or kind of make your connection with the land, with the space, did you ever think to yourself like, oh, I'm like this brown woman running in this green space and I wonder what what the other runners are thinking. I don't know, like what was your experience of like your own identity as a person of color and the spaces that you started to go into and discover? I think that's definitely changed over time. I remember hiking at the Barton Creek Greenbelt before I had ever considered running there. And I remember seeing some people running on the trail and just thinking like, man, I don't know if I could ever do that because the trail is, is really rocky. It's super jagged in parts. It can be pretty tricky to navigate. And so I think I went from not necessarily being able to see myself doing the thing to intentionally kind of like carving out that skill or creating that skill for myself and taking up space on the trail because I still don't see a lot of people that look like me on the trail when I'm running. And, you know, I also have long hair that I I wear in braids and I've got tattoos on my arms. So I stand out for a number of reasons. But I think one of the things that helped me begin to transform or really think differently about my running and even just the practice of running was being able to join in on a peace and dignity journey run that came through Austin in 2016. And for people that are not familiar with the peace and dignity journey, it's essentially an effort of native and indigenous peoples and allies. And they're running from opposite sides of the very top of North America, from the very bottom of South America, and they're running towards each other to meet And the purpose is to connect Native and Indigenous peoples along this journey. And essentially, it's a prayer for unity amongst Native and Indigenous peoples and a prayer for the preservation of culture and traditions and communities. And 
I think even just joining one of the runs when they were here in Austin or a couple of the runs when they were here in Austin just really made me think about the practice of running as prayer and as that meditation that you mentioned before. I don't think for me, maybe it's because of the nature at which when I started running and the fact that I didn't grow up running competitively, so that wasn't necessarily in my mindset. Running for me has served that sort of purpose of healing, of finding my confidence, of having it be a a way that I felt stronger as, as a person. And there was something that really resonated with me about prayer runs and thinking about running as a form of medicine for myself, medicine for for community, right? Because when you feel healthy and whole, you know, it affects your ability to be in community with people and to serve the community, which is very much a, a big part of my life. And so I think those pieces sort of helped shape the way that I thought about myself as a runner in the sense that Native and Indigenous peoples have been running since forever. It's not something that is new to our communities, but running culture as a whole has been portrayed as a, as a very white and male space. And I think being connected to that history of running as prayer and medicine helped me to feel like this is my place. This is something that my ancestors have done before. It's not something that is new. It's part of a very long tradition. And I think all of those things have helped me feel more at home on the trail and to feel like this is really, it's a natural thing, but we've been made to feel like we don't belong or that we don't have any sort of prior history of being involved in this way. Yeah. So I've seen some of the events or initiatives that you are involved with through Native Roots or ATX, Austin, Texas. And that's the the Native American and Indigenous people running and wellness crew that you are also a part of. So again, I learned something new just from like following you on Instagram is that there's like Native American or Indigenous community in Austin, something that I hardly ever heard about when I was living in Texas, but even generally in the U.S. But yeah, tell us more about that. And you started to talk a little bit more about like running in prayer, if I remember that correctly, and for community medicine. Are there specific practices that you feel comfortable sharing that you can share around how you develop that deeper relationship with land? And what about for people who are not necessarily native to that land? How can they pay respect to the land that they're kind of living on, but also running on in (laughs) both of those (laughs) I think it may seem so basic in some ways or so foundational but Mm -hmm. I think just beginning to learn about the history of the land is such a big step that people can take and that so many have not yet taken I think Texas is an interesting, it's an interesting state for a whole lot of reasons. But I think as far as visibility, I think the way that a lot of people that maybe today may be known as Mexicans had their indigeneity erased because of colonization helps to create that sort of invisibility of the presence of indigenous peoples. There are also people that 
call this place that is now Texas their ancestral homeland, but their reservation is not in the state of Texas. And so they don't have that presence in the state. So it's this interesting mix of people that are here, but also people that have been displaced and the way that that has affected our ability to develop a stronger presence and visibility for Native and Indigenous peoples in this region. And I think that, again, beginning to learn some of that history can be a really important way to raise awareness that there are Native and Indigenous groups in this region, in this state, that are present and that are are active and are trying to do the work of preserving culture and traditions. For me in particular, I had the experience that many others have had that their ancestors, their grandparents or great-grandparents learned that it was better for their survival to assimilate than to hold on to their indigeneity, right? And so they chose to learn Spanish, for example, at the expense of their their indigenous language. And there were these trade-offs that occurred for survival because people didn't feel like they had another option, that there was another way. And with the sort of community that we're trying to create with Native Roots is to bring Native and Indigenous peoples together and also to bring people together that are interested in the learning and the honoring of that history of Native and Indigenous peoples in this area because we know that it's not something that we can do by ourselves, right? This is something that creates a much broader movement, broader involvement. And part of the work too is helping to shift the way that we think about movement and wellness, right? And even just that distinction between wellness being seen as something that is individual and solely your responsibility, as opposed to wellness being something that we can achieve in community but also something that is affected by our broader environment, like the way that I mentioned lack of access to parks and the heat islands, right? If you can't go outside and, and move and take care of yourself in that way, your health conditions are, it's going to look very different than somebody that has all the time to be outside, has access to these beautiful spaces. So it's sort of this recognition too, that our wellness is much broader than just the individual actions that we take. It's also connected to these broader systems of oppression that have been created and that also have an impact on our lives and our health and our well-being. Mm -hmm. Speaking of wellness and the voluntary work that you do with Explore Austin, Explore Austin is mostly working with youth and helping them connect with nature. Is that correct? Mm Mm-hmm. So how do you help these kids make that direct connection between like spirit, practice, wellness, and their teenage minds or their youthful (laughs) minds? (laughs) Where they're like, "Eh, I don't see it. Therefore, well, I'm assuming, I don't know if that's the reaction, but like, what's your experience like when you try to connect those two? It's definitely a piece of it. They are very much teenagers. We started with them, my group. The, so I guess I'll backtrack a little. The way it works is when you sign up to volunteer as a mentor, you're assigned a group of girls that you work with. They're called explorers. And the goal is for you to stay with them until they pretty much graduate high school. So when I met my group of explorers, they were finishing sixth grade and getting ready to start seventh. And they are now in 11th grade. So it's been, it's been a few years. 
And I would say the piece that I've seen shift the most over time is their sense of confidence when it comes to trying something that is new or difficult. And it can still be a struggle, but I think the beauty in that is that we as mentors are not expected to come in as volunteers, having all of this prior knowledge or experience with doing things like rock climbing or mountain biking. The first time that I ever tried rock climbing was with Explore Austin. Mm. But it's really about also being in a space where you can see other people that are, in this case for the explorers, people that are older than them that are also struggling with learning something new and challenging, but you're doing it together. And I've certainly experienced my confidence grow right alongside the explorers in the program. During our reflection sessions that we do during our weekend outings with them, we carve out space to talk and process and think about different issues and even bringing in whatever they're experiencing in school or at home, but really provide a space to talk. And I think that there's been a, there's been a growing sort of recognition that we can find peace in the outdoors and it's okay to struggle through something because even if you maybe don't succeed in the way that you would want to have succeeded, it's still something new that you tried. It's still a way that you pushed yourself out of your comfort zone. Right. So once we're able to get them into a space where they can like think more introspectively about their growth and their change, we can have some powerful conversations. And we also just have a lot of like goofy conversations with teenagers. <laughs> yeah. So it's a good mix. Yeah. Do you ever wonder what your life would have been like, or just like your perception outlook towards life if you had a similar opportunity? I think about that. Sometimes I think I would have actually ended up in environmental science, something to do with yes. the outdoors <laughs> and science. I actually started at, at the University of Texas here in Austin in their mechanical engineering program. And I was always really good at math and science. I loved it. And I didn't feel that connection to the thing that I started out with as my major. But I think that it's because I didn't know that there was this whole world of opportunities that existed as far as possible career paths. And that's another part of the work of Explore Austin, kind of thinking about what are the paths that you can take? You know, there are these options that exist, but there's also this that exists. And I think it's been really important for the explorers that we work with to be able to see that there are so many more opportunities than we might realize. But a lot of times it's really what we see as possible can be deeply influenced by what is immediately around us. And if you don't have family members or friends, people that you know in your life that have pursued X, Y, or Z as a career path, you don't even know that it exists or it seems impossible to get there. So that's why I think I feel like I would have probably gone into something having to do with environmental science had I had a program like Explore. I guess like you still are an environmentalist in a sense, like you still know a lot about nature, regardless of whether you got a degree or not. And, and I know I keep saying that in these conversations, 
Because when you feel like this is your calling and in today's age, there's very little that's holding you back to learn more about something that you're passionate about. So yeah, I'm glad either way, degree or not, you still kind of found yourself being an advocate for not only environmental sustainability, but also sustaining the communities that depend on the natural environment and those who are not so fortunate to have access to that. Which kind of like brings me to the next part of our conversation was when we first talked to you, you mentioned that growing up in East Austin, you lived in an EJ community and you didn't necessarily realize that until you were you were much older. And then you got involved with an initiative called Poder to address the inequalities in your community in East Austin. So tell us about how you got involved in this EJ initiative. What specifically was the issue and how did the community organize themselves around like creating some change? Sure. I got involved with Poder, People Organized in Defense of Earth and Her Resources in a roundabout way. My sister was at Southwestern University in Georgetown, which is just north of Austin, and she had an internship with Poder. And Poder has a summer program called the Young Scholars for Justice program. And at the time, there was a member of the YSJ that was having some trouble with math. And I was good at math. And my sister actually asked me to come in and tutor this member of the Young Scholars for Justice so that she could pass her math class. She was taking it over the summer. And so she just needed some help so that she could get that over with. And so I would go into the office space and I overheard all of these conversations that they were having about race and racism and the history of the city. and. It was those conversations that really began to shift the way that I understood my surroundings because I didn't know that history before. I didn't know that so much of what we now see in Austin was shaped by the 1928 master plan. That very plan both created the so-called Negro district that segregated Black people into East Austin, but that also ended up pushing other people of color into this area. It also allowed for toxic industry to be zoned next to residential places. And that was when I made the connection like, oh, that's why there was an oil tank farm that I walked by when I was a kid and going to elementary school. And the whole reason that Bolded got created was to get rid of those very oil tanks that I had walked by every day on my way to school. And so beginning to connect the dots between what was in my neighborhood, the things that I had experienced, but then also the incredible amount of power that existed within the community, that's what really began to shape also the way that I saw myself and the role that I could play in my community. Prior to that, you know, I didn't know anything about the oil tank farms. They just like a lot of other features that are in our neighborhoods, they were just there, you know? Yeah. I didn't understand that it was a city decision. You know, people that didn't come from the community made a decision about what was going to be allowed in our neighborhoods. And all of these policy decisions and actors at the city level shaped what my 
childhood experience was essentially like. And I didn't understand that until I was in that environment with Poder. And seeing this organization being led by two Chicana indigenous women was also really life-changing for me because that was also the first time that I had experienced that, you know, two very vocal women that were speaking out against white supremacy and racism and calling out the injustices that were occurring at the city. That also really had a deeply profound impact on me. And even more so because kind of to the point that you were making before, one of the co-founders didn't go to college to study this. It was an issue that emerged from the community. And it was through community organizing that Boder was a part of that people started to learn and started to insert themselves into decision-making processes at the city. And they transformed my life. I know that they've had a deep impact on the lives of so many other people that have been a part of the Young Scholars for Justice program. But after that one summer, (laughs) overhearing these conversations, I was like, all right, I'm coming back (laughs) and I'm going to get involved. And those are lifelong relationships. One of the co-founders just had her, her birthday. She's almost 70 now, but she just had her birthday last week. And we did a virtual Zoom happy birthday celebration for her. And it was a really beautiful thing to be able to just recognize my shift over time, but then also look at the incredible impact that the organization has made in the lives of so many other people, because it's essentially helped them find that sense of their power and their voice. And that's something that you can't take away. Yeah. I'm always in such awe of communities that are I mean, I understand that they're organizing out of a need for a better life for their families and for future generations. But I think like for me, in my mind, I would just get so overwhelmed because it's like you're fighting essentially a system. You're fighting a government. And I'm assuming they had little to no connections within the city. They had little to no knowledge around policy or just how to navigate these bureaucracies. So. I guess, what is like one or two things that you really learned from having worked in community in terms of like what makes a movement successful? I think supporting other people to develop some of those skills and kind of always thinking about what am I doing to support the next generation is key. And that's a big part of the work that Poder was trying to do through the Young Scholars for Justice program. I think another piece is always thinking about, okay, who's not in the room, right? For whatever reason, I was able to insert myself in this space, or maybe I was invited in this space, but what about the people that aren't here? What am I going to do next time to ensure that they're also in this space? I think even though there is a lot to follow and a lot going on, especially within an institution as big as the city, in also acknowledging that our cities and systems and all of the processes were designed to serve only a certain section of the population. I mean, it just highlights for me the importance of working in community and being a part of organizing spaces to the extent that you can. It may not look the same for everybody, but I think having that connection and being in relationship with others 
can help create stronger movements and can create a space where even though maybe one person isn't an expert in one area, you've got other people that are more skilled and knowledgeable about how to navigate something else. And so you're really pulling in different types of of experiences, of knowledge, of different types of approaching an, an issue. And that can make it more sustainable because I do think that it's I mean, it's really tiring over time to be involved in in the work, but that's why I think it's all the more important to remember that this work isn't meant to be an individual thing, right? It isn't meant to be kind of a lone wolf going after a system, right? It's the power comes from trying to create those relationships and build that that bigger community that can do the work together so that it's less likely to lead to burnout. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess like your history or experiences of being in community, in a sense, like I see you as like a change maker, activist. And so now you work with the city of Austin in their equity office, and you're focusing on on immigrant affairs. How, if at all, do your experiences as community organizer, environmentalist, trail runner, mm-hmm. and mentor kind of converge into this position or inform how does it inform the work that you do right now with the city i think in many ways right cuz my background is in the field of education and i think the work of the office in many ways is about education and kind of thinking about the kind of work that we need to do to help bring people along There's a recognition that not everybody is starting at the same place when we're talking about race and racial justice and having a framework to understand the racial inequities that exist. And this is true whether you're white or whether you're a person of color. You know, we see a broad range of where people are as far as their starting point. And I think being committed to, again, bringing people along and thinking about who's not in the room and how we can support people so that they are growing and developing as leaders is a big part of the work that our office does. And that's because we recognize that our office right now, I think, has seven people. Mm. Seven people alone can't do this work citywide. We need to be in relationship with people both in the city, but also in the community. Because if we're acting from a place of assuming that we have all the answers, that's going to lead to really continued like disparate outcomes for community. It's the relationships with community that allows us to understand like these are the realities that people are facing. I certainly had one experience growing up now, but I'm not facing some of the same issues that I was now than I was when I was a kid, right? Growing up in in East Austin. And so those relationships with community that are foundational to the broader principles of community organizing are deeply important for us in the work that we do. But again, thinking about how are we bringing people along so that whether you're in the equity office or whether you're in the Watershed Protection Department or the Parks and Recreation Department, like you're also incorporating and developing this racial equity lens when it comes to the work that you're doing. Yeah. So one of the things that we're seeing increasingly, well, I guess I'm seeing increasingly or maybe noticing, let's just say noticing, (laughs) yeah, is that cities are 
investing more in their racial equity initiatives and creating offices, they're creating teams, departments. What is the power or influence for change for a racial equity initiative at a city level? Like, what's its function? Because when I think about (laughs) systemic racism, like, it just seems like such a massive thing to tackle, especially like when you're within that system. Mm -hmm. Right. So how do you all like approach where you stand in all of this? Like you're part of the system, but you're also trying to like undo it. Does it really work? I guess. How do you make it work? How do you make it work? Not (laughs) does it really work? (laughs) Well, I think it's a big part of the struggle. I've been with the office now for about a year and a half. Some of the people that were there since the beginning have been there for almost five years. And one of the ways that one of my coworkers talks about the work is we're essentially preventing bad things from happening. So you never necessarily, or you don't often get to see all of the things that we're working on because a good chunk of our work is prevention. And so it's about trying to influence the way that decisions are made, even just internally. And it can certainly feel like an uphill battle, so to speak. But I think that that's why the relationships with community are so important. Because when we're in these spaces where decisions are being made, it's not just us saying, this isn't equitable or correct for this, you know, this reason. It's we have relationships with community. This is what community is saying. This is going to have a negative impact. You should be involving community in the conversations that you're having instead of just speaking for them or making assumptions about what their needs are. So in that sense, it can feel like we're not making traction because the focus can feel at times as though it's just prevention. But at the same time, I also think about all of the relationships that we've built, that we're still building, and the power that exists in being able to have those relationships and being able to bring people along into the work that's being done to increase the number of people that are that are involved, right? So that it's not just this small group that is trying to create a more equitable city, but just, again, building toward this broader vision of equity should be everybody's work because it impacts each and every one of us, whether you're on the side that benefits from those inequities or you're on the side that is being continuously harmed by those inequities. It impacts every single one of us and it's all of our responsibility in the end. And that's essentially what we're trying to work towards and and just getting people to understand that and internalize that. Yeah. I'll take preventing harm any day from like causing (laughs) harm. So (laughs) I think there is value for sure. And it's like I was saying is I've just only noticed these racial equity teams forming up over the past few years, like five years to like seven years. There are fewer cities that have been doing it for longer than that. But yeah, I mean, I'm really, I guess like, impressed and enamored by the tenacity to do that type of work, especially at a city level, because and the power and the influence is very concentrated, especially at that level. So I feel very grateful and in some ways really privileged that I have the work 
colleagues that I do, I mean, they're family now, because even though it's with the city, this was one of the most jarring things for me to sort of (laughs) to take in. But the work environment is the place where I've felt the most supported as a worker, essentially, but also kind of recognizing that this is the work that we're doing is deeply personal for all of us. And we need to have those strong relationships in order to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really what keeps you afloat is those relationships because some days you're just going to want to vent. You don't want no judgment, (laughs) but also someone to be like, oh yeah, it's not just me. It's not in my head. Right. Like that validation. It's so important doing that type of work. So but I'm sure we can make an entire episode of each and every single one of these kind of like elements of your identity that we've just slightly <laughs> kind of peeked into. But we're unfortunately reaching the end of our time here. And I wanted to make sure that we get to our lightning round. So the lightning round is a series of four questions and it's supposed to go lightning fast, but (laughs) usually I get distracted by the responses because they're really cool. And I want to create like an entire conversation about them, but I'll ask the four questions one at a time and just answer the first thing that comes to you. Okay. Okay. So the first question here is what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? I would say that it was This Bridge Called My Back, uh, which is a collection of essays by radical women of color. And I read that book for the first time when I was in grad school. And I think I was still really trying to find my voice and especially my writing voice because I had that daunting task of producing a a master's thesis. And it was in their writing that there was so much vulnerability and so many deeply personal things that were woven into the stories that they were telling. And that has deeply shaped like the storyteller that I want to be. And when I write the writer that I want to be and to not shy away from vulnerability, both in my writing, but also just as a person in my everyday life. So are you writing a book? No. <laughs> if someone wants to pay me for it, I will. It sounds like you are. <laughs> no. I mean, you have an awesome story, so I'd buy that book. Yes, vulnerability in writing is, especially like, I think for me is, gosh, it, it can be like really, I don't know what the word is. Like, it can stump you because... You don't know how people will receive it. And I think I'm just like, to a certain extent, quite like insecure sometimes about my own writing because the type of writing that I was kind of taught was the more creative writing. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not a very good creative writer. <laughs> so I'll just stick to those journal articles <laughs> where I have to talk about data or, you know, qualities of data. But that's the extent to which I'll, I'll get vulnerable on paper. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Oh, personal habit. I think this, I don't know why, but I immediately think of like when there's crunch time and I have to just like focus and get something done. For some reason, I can be really good about just tuning everything out. So it doesn't matter how noisy things might be, how much there's going on in the distance, um, in my surrounding, I can like, laser focus and 
get it done. But I feel like that usually only happens when it's severe crunch time. <laughs> so, <laughs> is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I don't know, but it comes in handy when I need it to. Yeah, I think of that as working well under pressure. So it may not necessarily be like when something is due, but you know, if stuff is hitting the fan, then I like your reframing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Next time, let me know whenever you have like a report due, like, you know, in an hour or two, and I'm going to bring a jackhammer and just like stand <laughs> outside your window. Oh, God. <laughs> Put this theory to test. <laughs> Now that's really impressive. That super kind of like hyper focus. What's the best piece of advice you've received? Oh, that it's okay to ask for help. I think that's something that I struggled with a lot more before. It's still a challenge, but I think that it's very rooted in this sort of white supremacist ideal of perfection and perfectionism and having all the answers, which I don't think any of us do. And seeing asking for help as a sign of weakness instead of just something that is normal. It's okay to ask for help across like a range of circumstances. Yeah. And sometimes it's the really smart thing to do. Prevents a lot of headache. Yep. Finally, what is your superpower besides running for lengthy (laughs) amounts of time on rugged (laughs) terrain? (laughs) Oh man, I had somebody else ask me this question and I don't know if I have a good answer for it. I guess I'm still trying to figure out what my superpower is. So maybe it's TBD to be determined. Yeah, I'm sure it's there. You just perhaps don't recognize it or haven't embraced it. I don't know. I feel like there's so many, how do I say this? I I don't know. The words aren't coming to me. It's just a feeling that I am getting (laughs) from you is, is that like you're a quiet power. Is that a word? Like I've heard that from other people. So that resonates. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I feel like you move things and I don't mean that like in a scary way you know, like moving objects but like <laughs> that would be cool too <laughs> yeah that would be actually <laughs> as I think about it for like half a second but yeah like you have this quiet power to move people like into like I, I don't know like it's a very calming kind of energy or vibe that I get but it's one that creates a sense of like empowerment and Entitlement in a sense, like in a good way, like, yes, I can hold this space. Like I deserve to hold this space. I appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just thinking about like when you are mentoring your kids at the Explore Austin, it's, I think it, it takes a special kind of person to be a mentor. I don't think everyone can be. And especially to youth when they have so much going on in their lives, but to have a space where they can actually kind of just be, but also get like the guidance that they do and not get any kind of judgment. Yeah. And I feel like you kind of like transfer good energy to create a sense of like confidence and empowerment. Good. I try to. (laughs) I was like like thinking in comic strips, you know, like how this like energy is like coming out of you, like the Care Bears. And it's just like. "Ah." Oh my God, I love that. (laughs) But like a Marvel version. (laughs) Yeah. 
oh, we should just like make a shirt of that for you. <laughs> but not of a Care Bear, like a Marvel version <laughs> of you. And the energy just like coming out. Cool. Well, <laughs> before I go into any other rabbit holes here. So the other thing that I do ask is, how can we follow you on your journey? <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> I am most active on Instagram at the Chicana Explorer. So people can find me there. Very cool. And then finally, is there anything else you would like to add? I think the only other thing is, I'm just kind of thinking thinking broadly about where people are on their journeys to just remember to have grace for for yourself and to also extend that grace to other people because I think that's helped me deeply in my own growth and development and just kind of goes back to that notion that nobody is perfect. You know, we're going to make mistakes. There are things that we're going to look back on and maybe not feel super proud of or just kind of cringe, cringe and horror a little bit. But just remember that that was part of your journey. And you were able to continue because people extended grace to you. And so it's important to continue to extend grace for yourself, but also for for other people as they're on their journey too. Yeah, that's really good advice, which I also got from a meme. (laughs) It's this meme. I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't seen it like being viral anything like that but it's a saying of like if you ever think back to something that you did and it makes you cringe that's okay it just means that you've grown as a person and the meme is like a husky with glasses and right next to it the husky is a whiteboard with those words <laughs> it's like yes that for some reason that has stuck with me I'm like yes because when I think about like things I've yeah done like throughout my life I'm like ugh, that was like not cool or like it's like all right it's okay at least now you know that that was not cool then you've learned yeah (laughs) cool this is a great conversation Rocio thank you so much for your time for your wisdom I'm so so grateful that you were willing to make this happen I feel quite humbled to have you on the podcast and to add to it. Like that means a lot to me. So thank you so much. No, thank you again for the invitation. My honor. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.